0: Hey, how you doing? My name is Nolan. I'm from Past Gas by Donut Media. We are the world's number one automotive podcast. That's right. We're a storytelling show. This week, it's part three of our history of Mazda. Last week, we talked about the rotary engine and how they started a little bit of racing. This week, they got a lot more serious with it. They needed to make a big splash in the world stage. They decided to go to Le Mans over there in France and prove that they could keep up with the Europeans and the Americans. They did have a hard time with it, though. It's very intriguing. The rotary engine we talked about last week had some challenges. This is for the real Mazda heads and anybody who's curious about automotive history in general. Find it wherever you get your podcasts, Pass gas. I'll see you there. Pass
1: gas podcast. It's about cars. It's not
0: about ports. Hey guys, welcome to the Past Gas Podcast. If you like Past Gas, please help us grow by giving us a good rating and a nice review on the podcast platform of your choice. It'll really help us out and I really appreciate that. So thank you. All right, now for the show. When we met up last week, American soldiers were returning from far off battlefields all over the world. Society was recovering from the unprecedented brutality of World War II. Some countries were better off than others. Aside from the Japanese assault on Pearl Harbor in 1941, the large oceans on either side of the US protected the country from further attacks by her enemies. When the war was over, America's wartime economy was able to achieve a smooth transition to peacetime prosperity. The healthy job market that increased production meant that workers were being paid more than ever before, lifting millions of Americans into a growing middle class and starting families. This was called the baby boom. These new families in the middle class needed big cars to drive their kids around and had no problem affording them. So what does that mean for our story? Since the car was so affordable, the humble motorcycle was no longer seen as the budget option, as there were now budget economy cars to fill the gap. This new reality meant that, in America at least, the motorcycle was a non-essential item. So if you chose to ride, that said a lot about you. This is Past Gas.
2: said that you were
1: cool. You were a cool dude. You oh, I hear those
0: bikes mm. riding in. That must Good. be my co host coming onto the show. Mm.
1: Oh, my motorcycle's man. got more power, baby. Joke. Can I get fired up?
2: Fired up, baby. Yeah,
1: outlaws.
0: I am Nolan Sykes. Thank you for listening to Pass Gas. My co hosts, as always, I have Mr. James Pumphrey. Fire it up, baby.
1: (laughs) Hey. hey. (laughs) Wait, I messed up.
0: Hold on. Do me again. Uh, All right. Well, this is still the intro. (laughs) James (laughs) Pumphrey.
1: Lightning, lightning, lightning. More power, baby.
0: And Joe Weber.
2: Fire it up, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: welcome back. This is uh, part two of our series on the Hell's Angels and motorcycle history in America. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. How are we doing, boys?
1: We're good
2: you know we're we're hanging out at home uh wishing that we were on on motorcycles uh, on freaking route 66 uh hitting up flagstaff (laughs) yeah or just
1: like cruise up highway one with my old lady on the back yeah that sounds really good i
0: actually have been very tempted to go out and buy a honda grom which is kind of a motorcycle it's more like a big scoot it has a clutch and a brake i'm a beginner james i'm not good at riding i need something that's safe but I'm actually know. more... I'm more worried about the drivers in Los Angeles uh, than uh, my dude,
2: skills. It seems like all the... Uh, like, the only drivers left on the road are the worst drivers for some Psychopaths.
0: Reason. Yeah. Last night, I was watching TV, and I hear... Um, I'm pretty sure it was a, a Charger or a Challenger, something Dodge, uh, going by my house. I heard it go through... S- all six gear changes <laughs> oh my god <laughs> it was like backfired every time which meant that they were up in the rev range yeah. and i was uh, people are flying down my street it is scary out here yeah <laughs>
1: that's terrifying man so yeah so you should probably a get a really small cc motorcycle yeah. and just ride it yeah. around your neighborhood i think you should get something like a grom you know which uh offers no protection because it's a motorcycle but that's also not fast enough to get out of the way of no, anything. No, no. Um,
0: it. It. I. I have just been in my apartment, um,
2: <laughs>
0: uh, imagining the world outside. Yeah. Uh, it's been. It's been pretty crazy. But um, I don't know. Are, are you guys ready to hop back into the story?
1: Yeah. I'm thinking about moving to Palm Springs for the summer.
0: Yeah, is that yeah. something you could easily do?
1: I mean, not easily, but it would be a huge pain <laughs> in the. A-. But um. No, like my my lease is up, so thinking maybe I should just like it's gonna get. I'm working in my garage right now, and it's gonna get hot. Oh yeah, It'll get yeah. oh hot in here. Yeah, my so place doesn't have AC. So you should move AC. to
2: the, the hottest part of California. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> know, wait a I, minute.
1: Wait, a minute. I I also don't have uh, central air at my house. So oh. if I went and rented someplace with central air, and then I could also probably get a pool because Palm Springs is much cheaper than Los Angeles. I was. For my, I
0: actually really wanted to go to Palm Springs for my birthday. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, was not able to do that because I, I love Palm Springs. Yeah, me too. Um, it's great. Yeah, love the we desert, should, dude. We should like rent a house when this is over, dude. Like yeah, would, dude, for sure. Just, maybe just you and me, dude. Only yeah, you dude. and me. <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, you and guys only just go me. have fun. I, <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> and like, you don't even have to pack very much because we'll just be wearing our bathing suits the whole time.
1: Yeah, dude, we'll be in swimwear that entire time. Yeah. Or they also
2: have pretty sick vintage out there, so even if you don't pack anything, you could go buy some cool clothes. Oh, yeah, yeah I'm sure. For that's, sure. <laughs> yeah,
0: very budget-friendly out there, I've heard. All right, let's get into it. Enough gallivanting.
2: Let's okay. return to it, Nolan.
0: Yeah, <laughs> let's return to the story here. Okay. Let's return into it. Many American GIs returning home to America had relatively little issue reintegrating back into civilian life. I say relatively because no one can be expected to go from war to office life with no issues, and there were certainly people who had a lot of trouble with this. Life in every theater of war was a mixture of monotony, anxiety, paranoia, extreme duress and adrenaline. No one made it through the war without knowing someone who lost their life or witnessed it firsthand themselves. This experience messed up a lot of people at no fault of their own. The horror of warfare can do that to anybody. And it was this trauma that kept many soldiers from going back to domesticated civilian life smoothly. We didn't know it, but our troops were coming back home with post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, a quote, psychiatric disorder that can occur following the experience or witnessing of life-threatening events such as military combat.
2: Well, what, Pe- they, they knew about it, but they called it shell shock. And they were just like, yeah, it's just a part of war. Exactly,
0: exactly. Uh, People who suffer from PTSD often relive the experience through nightmares and flashbacks, have difficulty sleeping, and feel detached or estranged. Now, it goes without saying, because we've all heard of PTSD, but this affliction has a huge effect on your daily life. Beyond the mental trauma, something else is bothering veterans. A lack of camaraderie. Now, obviously, none of us on this show can attest to this, but combat tends to forge strong bonds between those fighting together, you rely on one another to survive, Uh, and when you hear soldiers refer to each other as brothers, they aren't exaggerating. But in post-World War II America, you, you couldn't recreate that sort of bond at your office job. So in an attempt to rekindle the brotherhood, lots of vets started reconnecting and hanging out. And according to motorcycle historian William J. Delaney, it wasn't long before motorcycles started coming into the picture. As we covered in our last episode, many American troops learned how to ride during the war, either through assigned roles like couriers and convoy escorts, or commandeering motorcycles to escape the stress of battle. Vets knew that bikes helped ease the pain. So these men, who had been through so much and had a hard time reintegrating back into normal life because of it, started riding together. These men would start motorcycle clubs.
1: So, like Nolan said, motorcycles could be found for very cheap. A new Harley-Davidson WLA military surplus bike could be had with little to no miles for only a couple hundred bucks. Some even inside the crate. Ooh. That's brand new in box, baby. Can you imagine
0: like finding a barn find sur- surplus bike in the crate today? You know, be- they're,
1: you know they're out there. They're, they have to be. That'd be so amazing. Uh, this allowed basically anyone to get their hands on a motorcycle. Of course, people weren't going to be riding the same olive drab army bike on the street. That would be freaking boring, and we don't like boring. So Mm -hmm. they started modifying them, giving birth to what would become chopper culture and ensuring that almost no stock military surplus motorcycles would survive. Ah, there goes that dream. (laughs) Yeah. In Europe, the availability of surplus Harley-Davidson WLAs and German-ridden BMW R75 helped establish a new love for off-road motorcycles and accessibility to motocross racing. But in the U.S., it was a bit of a different story. Yeah. On that (laughs) note, um,
0: motocross had actually been around in the same way that flat track and the velodrome racing that we covered last episode was going on in the U.S., over in um, Europe, it was more about motocross and doing what were called scrambles, where guys were doing like point to point races over in through like the, the countryside. Uh, and really that cool.
1: gave birth to the term scrambler, which is sort of like uh, one of those vintage dirt bike things. Ducati makes one. They're very they're popular so now. Cool. I think yeah, they're, they're cool amazing. too. Yeah. They're All really those cool.
2: Husqvarna, like the, the 400 is so cool. That's, that's my dream bike. Husky's make...
1: They make really cool bikes. They also make chainsaws, which is pretty
0: bad a- too. Dude, what think of a motorcycle that had chainsaws for wheels,
1: dude. Oh, dude, that'd be a snowmobile, bro. <laughs> dude,
2: that's a real chopper. ha. <laughs> oh, nice,
1: dude. Nice. That reminds me of my cousin who is a professional lumberjack and he just got his first prologue. <laughs> oh my like, god.
2: Bring it. Uh, it was so good we had to bring it back in episode yeah. two.
1: <laughs> such a solid <laughs> joke. If you missed that joke in episode one, uh, go back and listen to it.
2: And subscribe while you're there. Yeah. Uh, we
1: make this show every week. Um, and to make sure you don't miss any of them, just go ahead and hit that subscribe button. I know you hear YouTubers saying that all the time. Like, don't forget to like and to subscribe. But it really um, is the best way to not miss anything if you like this episode, if you like this show. W- subscribe if you don't i'm sorry yeah if you've do- been
0: charmed by our brilliant sense of humor and good yeah. looks already you might as well just hit that subscribe button right yeah now.
1: if you do like this uh please hit the subscribe button uh if you don't like it uh i don't know maybe you're a masochist hit it anyway <laughs> uh. <laughs> um by the end of dub dub 2 there are fewer than two hundred thousand registered motorcycles cruising around in the states Within the next five years, that number would increase to over a million. Motorcycle clubs began sprouting up as more vets found bikes. Talking about veterans, not veterinarians. For most members, the club was a way to escape the dull monotony of suburban life. They would primarily take part in sanctioned races, go on long group cruises, and overall just blow off steam before returning to the everyday grind. But for some, the activeness... And adventure of these small motorcycle clubs started becoming something more. They loved the chaos and the thrills of partying like old times during the war. It provided the sense of camaraderie they craved from the battlefield. And all in all, they wanted to just have fun and raise as much hell as possible while doing it. Hell yeah, yeah. brother.
2: (laughs) Fire it up. (laughs) More power, baby. <laughs> wink wink. <laughs> yeah. I want to see the guy
0: throwing that one out. Yeah. <laughs> Riders would group up and branch off to form their own clubs, like I said. One of the largest being the pissed off bastards of Bloomington. <laughs> yeah, dude. Uh the Market po Street Pobob. Po po Bob. Bob. Yeah. Po- unironically, Pobob. Yeah. Uh the Market Street Commandos were another one. And the Booze Fighters. I've actually heard of the Booze Fighters. Yeah, we'll talk about them a little more in a little bit. Uh, These clubs were loosely organized and constantly causing a ruckus, but that's how they liked it, man. In the public eye, those who even knew about the clubs, uh, as they were still relatively unknown, viewed them as little more than small groups of dudes who were just out there to get drunk and have fun. But the public's perception of motorcycle clubs was about to change. Like the Outlaws Motorcycle Club we discussed last episode, the Booze Fighters were a bunch of dudes uh, who loved bikes and booze. Also like the Outlaws, the Booze Fighters had a regular hangout, the All-American Cafe in Southgate, Los Angeles. That's near me. The club was officially formalized in 1946 by founders Willie Wino Forkner and J.D. John Cameron. According to one dot com, a great resource, uh, other members of the booze fighters included guys with names like George Menker, Dink Burns, and my personal favorite, Fat Boy Nelson.
2: That's his birth name, right? <laughs> yeah.
0: Is is Dink a
1: nickname or is,
0: is I think so. I think Dink is a nickname, but Fat Boy. I mean, I feel bad for Fat Boy Nelson. Yeah. Um,
1: Unless he was like really skinny and that's why they called him that like ironically that that I hope it's that
2: dink got his name because he was he he had two jobs so he was dual dual income no kids burns
0: (laughs) 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 Uh, founder Wino Forkner got his nickname when he was just seven years old growing up in Fresno California the Central Valley. The story goes that as a kid in wine country, Wino Willie would go around at different wineries and drink wine. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Wino awakened his inner adrenaline junkie serving in the Pacific theater of World War II, crewing on a B-24 Liberator heavy bomber. Uh, In a twist of fate, Wino was reassigned to a different plane before a mission over the Japanese stronghold of Iwo Jima, during which Wino witnessed his original plane get shot down. Wow.
2: That's yeah, like, I, uh, what's that movie? What's that freaking movie from 20 years ago?
0: Final Destination.
2: Final Destination.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I also think it's funny that this dude's like a, a badass, but he got his like cool nickname from the same place that all the girls in LA go for their Bachelorette party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, his other name was Lululemon. <laughs> uh, Forkner. <laughs> in
1: 1947, the American Motorcyclists Association, the preemptive motorcycle lobby in the U.S., was back to organizing races and rallies around the country. One such event was the AMA's Gypsy Tour to Hollister, which is another term um, that's sort of problematic in hindsight. They still use it. Yeah. So the uh, the Gypsy Tour was to Hollister in Central California on Fourth of July weekend. That sounds so fun. Oh, yeah. Gypsy oh, tours were large, large gatherings of motorcyclists from all over the state, but it wasn't uncommon for bikers on the other side of the country to make the journey to these events. Yeah, dudes from like Florida were riding over to go to Hollister. That's awesome. Yeah. Hollister had been a popular site for motorcycle racing since the 1930s, and now that the war was over, local businesses were ready to host motorcyclists once again. Race weekends were extremely lucrative. The goal was to attract people to the AMA-sanctioned race hosted by the home club, the Salinas Ramblers. But a lot of riders just planned on going up, camping out in the country, and catching up with their buddies, all while drinking plenty of beer. Sounds fun. (laughs) Yeah, sounds like literally.
2: Not Wino, though. Wino wanted some wine. (laughs) Yeah, Wino wanted wine.
1: That sounds like exactly what I would like to do right now. (laughs) <laughs> just drive somewhere and meet a bunch of people from all over the country and hang out and drink some brews. Yeah, same. Wino Forkner and the Booze Fighters plan to do just that and make the trek north. Little did they know, but this weekend would change how Americans saw bikers and motorcycle clubs forever. And while the Salinas Ramblers and the AMA were busy putting on their races, hundreds of riders flooded the streets of downtown Hollister, packing the town's restaurants and bars. There's
0: like, in this tiny town, in 1947, mind you, there are 21 bars.
1: Wow. <laughs> that's a lot.
0: Yeah, that's so awesome.
1: Um, and nobody who was there would deny it, but people were having a lot of fun. Maybe, you know, in some people's eyes, a little too much fun. Uh-oh. Bikes lined the road and the sidewalks were so packed that non-party businesses like Bob Yant's Appliance Store were affected because customers couldn't make it in the door. If you weren't on San Benito Street to party, brother, look out. In an an effort to contain the rowdiness to one street and shield the locals from such buffoonery, the police force of just seven officers blocked (laughs) off either end of San Benito.
2: I think there should be at least... One cop per bar, right? Yeah, no kidding, <laughs> yeah. right?
0: So things started getting a little too rowdy when riders rode their hogs into the bars,
1: yes. which <laughs> ev- everyone thought was actually pretty sick. Dude, I, <laughs> I think it's sick. Hey, <laughs> that's awesome. I love it.
2: Hold on, I got to go to the bathroom real quick. <laughs> <laughs>
0: The police were getting even more worried and suggested that the bars close a few hours early and stop selling beer. Bad idea. They figured that the bikers couldn't afford the hard liquor, which they were probably right. Um, The bikers were probably disappointed, but eventually made their way from the bars to the street where the real fun began. The police and townsfolk watched in awe as the riders staged drag races down San Benito, and held impromptu wheelie contests that would have made Evil Knievel proud. Dude, actually, this actually sounds. I'm. I'd be surprised if evil Knievel wasn't there. Um, it he sounds was probably sick. like sixteen. Yeah. What uh, year is this? Forty-seven.
2: Yeah, he was like twelve.
0: Okay, so I guess he wouldn't have been there.
2: Oh well, but he heard about it.
0: Probably. He so, was like,
1: that was that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm going to extort somebody for protection money. (laughs) Uh, But fun like that doesn't go down without a price. The numbers vary, but anywhere between 20 to 60 riders were hurt during the takeover. And about 60 riders were arrested for misdemeanors like disorderly conduct, public drunkenness, and reckless driving. But most of those guys were released shortly
1: after. Even our boy Wino was thrown in the clink, quote, uh, they had arrested red, which is another one of the booze fighters for drunk and disorderly <laughs> and a uh, bunch of the guys who had gone over to the jail. We, we was going to break him out. Right. So <laughs> man, I went over there and I told the fellas, let's forget this wild west stuff. Red needs arrest. But of course the cops figured that I was the leader. And they grabbed me. And later that day, the judge says, he'll let me out if I listen to my wife. And I told him, hell no, I haven't listened to her yet. So I'm not going to start now. Hey, God, your
2: breath smells like bleach. <laughs> Have you been drinking
1: yeah. bleach? Uh, yeah. I, the, all the wine was dyed my teeth red. And I knew <laughs> I had to go to court. Why no? Why no? is everything OK at home? Uh, yeah, I just never even listened to my wife, and it's a problem because I don't even know when we're supposed to eat dinner or nothing.
2: <laughs> That's the biggest problem is you don't know when dinner is? Uh, that and I don't know what my kids' names are. <laughs> yeah, Okay. <laughs>
1: Uh, while multiple
0: testimonies from locals claimed that no one really felt threatened by the bikers, the police had other ideas.
1: No, uh, honestly, on- I thought uh, what they were doing was pretty cool. Yeah, they're doing, uh, they're riding down the street on one wheel. I think they were calling it a wheelie. It's uh, really cool. My son loved it. Yeah, they were having a couple beers, but it was fun. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: on Sunday, 40... Oh me? High- I- oh, me? I'm from Hollister, California. You sound like you're
2: from New Jersey.
1: Now nah, it's my Hollister, California accent. That's how we all Now talking. you sound like
2: Christopher Walken. <laughs> the Foo Who? Fighters. The Foo Fighters.
1: <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, so 40 highway patrolmen descended upon Hollister, reportedly dispersing tear gas to break up the bikers. Uh, a lot of the riders got the message and got the hell out of Hollister before it escalated. Despite the tomfoolery and hooliganism, the locals surprisingly really didn't seem to mind the brief chaos, as these quotes from people who were actually there will now demonstrate. Mechanic Burt Lanning said,
1: There was a bunch of guys up on the second floor of the hotel throwing water balloons. I didn't see any fighting or nothing like that. I really enjoyed myself. I'm glad these guys came by.
0: (laughs) Here's a quote from hotel proprietor Catherine Dabo who hosted many writers present that weekend. We were
1: totally booked. Every room was full, and we had people sleeping in the halls, in the lobby, but they were great people, just darling darlings. We have more trouble on regular weekends. Uh, I was never scared. Uh, If you like people, they like you. Maybe if you try telling them what to do, then look out. (laughs) I'm looking at you, cops. And finally, here's drugstore owner and mother,
0: Mary Lou Williams, who was downtown and saw it all go down. I brought my kids along.
1: I have two daughters. They were about eight and four at the time. It never occurred to me to be worried about their safety. We saw them riding up and down the street, but that was about all. When the rodeo was in town, the cowboys were just as bad, only they were on horses instead of motorcycles. <laughs>
0: So, it sounds like the Hollister populace thought the 4th of July weekend of 1947 was nothing out of the ordinary, just a rowdy gathering that boosted the local economy to boot. So, why are we even talking about it? Well, because people who weren't even there made a way bigger deal out of the event and forever altered the course of American pop culture in the process.
2: That's always the case, right? People see pictures yeah, people of it in San Francisco it out of proportion.
0: Exactly, as we will now see.
1: At first, it started with newspaper reports from the far-off San Francisco Chronicle detailing the happenings of the weekend. Headlines like Havoc in Hollister and Riots, Cyclists Take Over Town made it sound like thousands of bikers came through town and ripped the place apart. It was only when readers flipped to the story and found out that wasn't exactly the case. There weren't even any pictures taken that weekend in their stories. The weekend might have been a memory that your hog-riding grandpa told you before bedtime. If not for a photograph taken by the Chronicle photographer, Barney Peterson. This picture captured Eddie Davenport sitting on a Harley Davidson with a beer in each hand and a pile of bottles on the ground around him. Behind him is Gus DeSerpa, a movie theater projectionist who just happened to be walking out of the theater as the photo was taken. And unfortunately for everyone involved that weekend, this infamous photo found its way into the hands of Life magazine.
0: In the July 21st edition of Life, the magazine ran Barney's photo in their This Week's Events section with the headline, Cyclist's Holiday, He and Friends Terrorize Town. A short blurb accompanied with the page-filling photo uh, read,
1: On the 4th of July weekend, 4,000 members of a motorcycle club rolled into Hollister, California for a three-day convention. Stop. They quickly tired of ordinary motorcycle thrills and turned to more exciting stunts. Stop. Racing their vehicles down the main street and through traffic lights, they rammed into restaurants and bars, breaking furniture and mirrors. Stop. Some (laughs) rested a while by the curb, like this guy above others hardly paused stop police arrested many for drunkenness and indecent exposure i.e. their wieners and butts were all hanging out but could not restore order finally after two days a cyclist left with a brazen exclamation and I quote we like to show off it's just a lot of fun but Hollister's police chief took a different view wailed he it's just one hell of a mess full stop
2: wailed he is my favorite phrase
0: Yeah, I mean it's a life, life magazine blurb, but then they throw some freaking like Moby Dick in there. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah,
1: that's the kind of whale they were talking about. I read it like a Telegraph. Yeah, I liked. I I think you did a great job, James. Thanks, I like. I really like that. I was trying to provide it made sense some with
2: the voice you did too. Yeah, it thank was great. you. It was,
1: I was providing some color for the time. That's how Telegram men spoke back in those times. <laughs> <laughs>
0: While the San Fran Chronicle story did little to amplify the Hollister event around the country, Life Magazine was a national publication, and thrust that weekend's events into the mainstream. Since the end of World War II, bikers were somewhat of a niche community, but now, they were seen as violent ruffians, hell-bent on destroying all that was good and holy, if you just add alcohol. That 117-word news blurb, which barely counted as reporting, caused towns all over the country to cancel their AMA events in fear that these fire-breathing savages would do them in next. Word spread throughout the motorcycle community that the AMA had released a statement in response to the perceived carnage, that the AMA was distancing themselves from these men, that in fact, the AMA didn't represent them at all. AMA members in Hollister were at the races outside of town. It must have been the outlaw clubs, unaffiliated with the AMA, that burned it to the ground. According
1: to uh, William Delaney. This supposed statement said that quote. 99% of motorcyclists are good decent law abiding citizens. And that the AMA's ranks of motorcycle clubs were not involved in this debacle. It was
0: that damn 1% that was responsible. There was just one problem. Barney Peterson's photo. The catalyst for this entire backlash. Was fake.
2: Bum bum bum. Oh, that's where the. That's where that 1% comes from? The 1% yeah, and actually,
0: uh, we'll talk about that a little later, but it's, that isn't entirely accurate either. Um, but let's talk about this photo first. Turns out, the subject of the photo, Eddie Davenport, the now infamous drunk on the bike, was just that, a drunk. There's still speculation to this day whether or not he was a rider at all. The man in the back of the photo, Gus DeSerpa, a guy who many probably probably saw as the American ideal contrasting Davenport's degeneracy was in fact trying to stop the photo from being taken in the first place. Quote,
1: I saw two guys scraping all these bottles together. They had been lying in the street. Uh, Then they positioned a motorcycle in the middle of the pile Well, after a while, this drunk guy comes staggering out of the bar and they got him to sit on the motorcycle and started to take his picture. And I thought, well, that isn't right. And I I got around against the wall where I'd be in the picture thinking that they wouldn't take it if someone else was, you know, in the picture. But, you know, it turns out they took it anyway. A few days later, the papers came out and I was right there in the background.
0: Like many other Hollister locals, he denied that he ever felt in danger that
1: weekend, adding They weren't doing anything bad, just riding up and down, whooping and hollering. Not really doing any harm at all. They were even picking up bottles because bottles is is litter. You know, it is. You're right, Gus. Bottles is litter. I I got an idea for a thing. I'm going to call it Recycling we can take all the old stuff and turn it Whoa, into new stuff. Oh, this is the guy stuff. that
2: invented recycling. That's so <laughs> yeah. cool. we mm-hmm. We'll be right back with more of this story, but first,
1: a word from our sponsors.
0: Okay, guys. I know we've been waiting to hear about the Hell's Angels and we've had to set up a lot of context. And I, I apologize for that. It's probably been a lot it's been a long we've wait really for everybody listening. Really been
2: edginess Nolan. <laughs> yeah, yeah let, sorry.
0: give me some of that Hell's Angels. Alright, so, as we've previously mentioned, perhaps exhaustively at this point, a large majority of motorcycle club members were ex-military and fought in World War II. Many of these people were dealing with physical and emotional trauma that would haunt them for life. As a result of such horrific trauma, some members of these clubs were not always the most agreeable, even with each other. Constant infighting, uh, resulted in members eventually splintering off to form their own clubs.
2: I would imagine. Sorry, to cut you off for a second. I would imagine no, okay. that, uh, these like disenfranchised guys that coming back from war and they they like, re- they don't have any friends and they're tinkering with their motorcycle. They see this picture in life, and they see this story coming out, and they're like, "Whoa, those that those are my people. Like, I need to find those people."
0: Yeah, you know, a, a lot of. MC members did not think so kindly of the Life Magazine photo because they knew that it wasn't accurate. Yeah. Um, but there was certainly a very small demographic of people who saw that and was like, that that, that looks like a good time. Yeah. One of those not-so-agreeable guys was a dude named Otto Friedley, a member of the Pissed-Off Bastards of Bloomington. Poop up! Pobob, baby. He left the club after the Hollister incident and headed for San Bernardino to join another club that he had heard about that consisted of other outcast members from other clubs, much
1: like Otto. They called themselves the Hells Angels. Hell yeah. From 1948 to 1953, the Hells Angels took part in about every AMA-sectioned event in the area. There's a lot of debate on the origin of the Hells Angels' name. According to Sonny Barger, a prominent member whom we will be talking about in more detail very soon, a large number of WW2 pilots rode motorcycles in the San Bernardino or San Bernardino area. Whoa. Uh, When they would cruise by on their bikes, people would say, well, there goes some of those Hell's Angels. But the name has much more deep-seated roots in history. In 1930, Howard Hughes released the movie Hell's Angels, a technical marvel at the time, and one of the big screen's first sound action films. Hell's Angels tells the story of a fictional World War I air fighter squadron of the same name. The movie was widely controversial for its use of the word hell and other adult language, as well as its occasional sexuality. Hey, Tuts, you're looking good. Oh, my goodness. goodness. Lord. (laughs) Oh, bother. (laughs) (laughs) Now, it was a pre-code movie, which meant it was released before there were any restrictions on what could be shown in theaters. Three people died during the production of the film during the flight scenes, and a lawsuit claiming a similar movie, The Dawn Patrol, had plagiarized Hell's Angels only increased the notoriety of the film. While being the largest box office success of a sound movie at the time, with a gross of 2.5 million bones... It failed to reach the 2.9 million production cost. Still, Jeez. though, because of the absolute insanity that is Howard Hughes as a person, it became one of the most influential movies of the time. And like, if you've ever seen the the Aviator, the Leo Decap movie, uh, starring starring Leo Decap about Hi- Howard Hughes, <laughs> uh, like a lot of the it's movie weird is that you him.
2: Would not say the last syllable of his name.
1: Uh, it's because that's what like he likes for his friends to call him. Oh, but see. it's,
2: I I would think that they would just call him like Leo, yeah Leo L. Decap.
1: Well, we also hang out with Leo Leo Maronity. He's another <laughs> Leo. <laughs> Leo Moronati. He's not a famous actor like Leo Decap. He's actually like a um he's a sanitation worker. Great guy. But you know okay. Leo Decap does. He's not like a classist. You know what I mean. He likes to hang out with everybody. Including no, certainly not. Car YouTubers and sanitation workers, but anyway, Leo Decap plays Howard Hughes in the movie, and I think like at one point, uh, Howard Hughes had like one of the biggest air forces in the world just to like because he had real planes flying around to make this movie. That's crazy. Yeah, Leo Decap also has a Triceratops. He doesn't go skull. by that name. Yeah, he does, dude. I don't think you would know that. <laughs> I think I would because he's one of my best friends.
2: <laughs> why wouldn't they? Ju- why wouldn't you just say the last syllable? Why would you shorten it? It's two. But- si-
1: we're, I'm cutting out two syllables. If you want to get technical, I'm cutting out Rio, decap Rio.
2: You never heard people say Ra,
1: <laughs> decap bro. <laughs> Sometimes we call uh, him decap bro. Yeah. Bro anyway, know. Leo decap has a Triceratops skull in his living room. <laughs> <laughs> a real one.
2: And scene.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The influence of Hell's Angels carried forth throughout the years. And during World War II, the name Hell's Angels found itself painted on the side of multiple planes. Apparently no less than 17 bombers and an entire P-38 fighter squadron held the name Hell's Angels. The logo uh, designed for the Hell's Angels pilots was that of a red silhouette of a woman with a halo and wings outlined in white. Sounds very cool. Each Hell's Angel pilot had their own lady painted on the side of their plane, each with her own personality. You know, it kind of reminds me of like, um, crap, what are, what are those freaking anime cars called? Itasha. Oh, Itasha, yeah. Yeah, like our, our, our buddy Jimmy had his uh, Mustang with a anime chick on the side. Uh, um,
1: we we should have, we've messed up by starting a company.
0: We should have just started a club. I mean, Boost Creeps is a club.
1: Oh yeah, Boost Creeps is a club.
0: We have our own shirt, which you can buy now at DonutMedia.com. Hey, oh, anyway. we
1: should start uh, a gang called uh, Team Wangan Donite. <laughs> what, what is that from? From like the Team, Team Midnight w- episode. Team Wangan Midnight. Team uh, Wangan Donite.
2: But Donite? <laughs> yeah, Donite. It's <laughs> a, a,
1: a bit of a stretch, I
2: think.
0: <laughs> I think it's cool. <laughs> uh, all right. Anyway, the colors of red and white were used consistently throughout each plane. Much like the Hell's Angel Motorcycle Club logo that we'll learn about a little later. Uh, When the media first picked up on the Hell's Angels in the following years, they wanted to write a story that would sell the most papers. So they told an origin story of a group of misfit World War II bomber pilots of the 303rd Bomber Division who were violent offenders and drunks who were incapable of completely adjusting to home life and would repeatedly, repeatedly show up to their flight duty intoxicated. I mean, it sounds like a very cool story. While some of it may be true in regards to some of the people being incapable of adjusting to life after combat, the 303rd was a true force to be reckoned with during the war. It was a real division, but not everything was accurate about it. The battle record of the 303rd uh, and all other groups that flew under the Hells Angels' names show a large group of uh, you know courageous dudes who took their duty with utmost seriousness.
2: In other words, they're performance-minded young people. That's right. That's right.
0: The 303rd Bomber Group uh, flew 364 combat missions. They dropped 26,346 tons of explosives and is credited with 640, 664 enemy aircraft
1: destroyed. Wow. Pretty good. Yeah. One of the most notorious groups to fly the Hells Angels name was the American Volunteer Group, the AVG a secret American volunteer division of the Chinese Air Force. The AVG was more informally known as the Flying Tigers. Interestingly enough, the Hells Angels weren't the only interesting thing to come out of the Flying Tigers. Racing legend, sexual deviant, and part-time oil-slash-gold miner Smokey Eunuch also flew B-17s in the Flying Tigers and smuggled goods in China during and shortly after the war. We actually covered this Playboy smuggler, one of the cool I think maybe the coolest person ever. Yeah, uh, still Smokey. the coolest
0: figure we've had on the show. Yeah. So far, for sure. We, co-
1: we covered him uh in episode seven of Past Gas, So if yeah, you so haven't check already it checked out. it out, check it out. And uh if you're digging into older episodes, go ahead and that go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you don't yeah. miss any
0: more. Uh you can learn what he called his uh penis. And what uh, he called his beard. What do you call his be- That's right. You can learn about his uh,
1: body hair.
0: It's a very, very interesting episode. <laughs> In
1: 1953, The Wild One starring Marlon Brando hit the big screen. It was a tale of a biker gang, or as the movie states it, jazzed up hoodlums, that wants nothing more than to wreak havoc as they take over the small town of Wrightsville. The Wild One is considered to be the original outlaw biker film. It was based around the sensational media coverage of the Hollister Quote unquote riot. While filming the movie, the director decided that the roles of the biker gang, the Black Rebels MC, should be played by real bikers and hired real Hells Angels members to fill the roles. During production, Kramer, the director, asked them what they were rebelling against, to which one cyclist replied, What do you got? That line was immediately incorporated into the script and is one of the most famous lines from any movie or Marlon Brando's entire career. That quote, would also become the mantra for the rebellion that was growing on the road
2: do you guys listen to black rebel motorcycle club at all Mm -hmm. yeah they're pretty cool
0: there you go i never i never put that together well okay so this movie when it came out i mean it's just like it it just further enforced what people thought about motorcycle clubs thanks to the I hate to use this term, but thanks to the, the fake news of the, the, the Life Magazine article. You know? Mm-hmm. Imagine, base, imagine writing a script for a movie based on a Life Magazine
1: blurb. I um, wrote a treatment and outline for a movie and then pitched it based on uh, when 2 Chains was in his tour bus and refused to open the door because he had weed on him and he had that standoff with the police.
2: I don't remember was that. that.
1: When he was, was that when he was
0: still known as uh, Titty Boy? No. No? he was two chains.
1: <laughs> so yeah, Nolan, I can imagine writing a movie based on a news article.
0: During this time, the Hells Angels was only one of about a dozen motorcycle clubs around the country. There was no real organization between the clubs, and they had almost no contact with
1: each other besides at those gypsy runs. But my that favorite, was about to
2: change. My favorite mm. motorcycle club is the Sons of Anarchy. <laughs>
1: oh, no, dude. We're going to have problems because my favorite is the Mayans.
2: Oh, dude. I just like all seasons of that motorcycle club. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. In
0: 1954, the Hells Angels absorbed the Market Street Commandos in San Francisco. That's and a sick made, name, yeah, too. Yeah, and made them the second chapter of the organization. Uh, it was the head of the Frisco chapter, Mr. Frank Sedelik, who designed the now infamous Death Head insignia. The design had stylistic cues taken directly from the insignias of the 85th Fighter and 552nd Bomber Division during the war. While it was Sedelik's design that allowed all members to unite under one image, it was Sonny Barger who truly connected the organizations and established the Hells Angels we are familiar with.
1: Ralph Sonny Barger was a high school dropout who forged his own birth certificate at 16 so he could fight in the war. No, look,
2: I was born. I was born this year.
1: It didn't take long, though, until his true age was revealed, and at 17, he was honorably discharged and sent back home to Oakland, where he purchased his first motorcycle. At the age of 18, he established the Hell's Angel Oakland chapter. It wasn't until after he had established the chapter that he realized the angels could be so much more than a group of loosely connected clubhouses. To unite the Hells Angels, the club first needed to become more publicly recognized. Fortunately for Barger, it wouldn't take long for the club to get an opportunity. Less than a year after establishing the Oakland chapter in 1957, a group of angels were headed to Angels Camp, California for an AMA gypsy tour, much like the Hollister one that we talked about earlier. As Barger put it in his autobiography, during the Gypsy Tour, two Sacramento Hells Angels raced out of town at speeds of over 100 miles per hour. As they crested the top of the hill, their bikes sailed into the air, crashed down on a pack of riders coming up the hill. Both SACTO members were killed and the accident scene was pretty ugly. Uh, The AMA wore a big black eye after the papers wrote about it and they decided to cancel any such future events. Oddly enough, while the AMA looked bad, the publicity sparked even more enmity toward the Hells Angels from the straight world. But, as the French saying goes, uh, I don't know how to
0: say French. Success de scandale. (laughs) Basically, the only bad press for the club was no press, and the membership rate took off from there. Over the next decade, Barger established the law of the land for new members. New members had to be vetted. There was an application process dues were paid to maintain the clubhouse and all members had to promise to protect each other no matter what so this is really the turning point that we see for the motorcycle club this is when it gets America. serious this is yeah. when it gets
1: heavy it, be- it becomes a lifestyle
0: yeah before it was like you know i mean i think guys took it pretty seriously before this but it was more of like hey man like you guys are my freaking bros we're going to drink we're going to ride mm-hmm. um Everyone's against us.
2: Let's prove them. Let's prove to them that we're no one to be f- with. Yeah. Well, this now is...
0: that's what the Hells Angels are saying. It's like, hey, now we got to protect each other. And that means freaking doing battle.
1: Yeah, they, they become organized. Yes.
0: Most importantly, though, Barger established a uniform for members to wear. Leather or denim vests were to be worn with signifying patches to denote what club and chapter you were a part of. As well as what rank/slash accomplishment, accomplishments you have achieved within the club, these like vests, the Boy
2: Scouts,
1: yeah, just like the Boy Scouts or the Girl
0: yeah, Scouts. Yeah, I'm sure they'd love to. I'm sure they'd love to hear that. It's like the Brownies. Uh, it's
2: these like vests, the Brownies. You sell enough cookies, you get a patch on your cut, right? That's what they call them, cuts
0: or colors, uh, is what they also call them. And these cut or colors are still one of the most defining traits of any motorcycle club. It is, uh, it. I, you know, I, I, I like seeing dudes roll by. Uh I, I love seeing the dudes roll by. That's all I'll say. No, I love seeing I love seeing I love motorcycle uh I love club vests. I think they're I got this one they're, for they're helping cool. an old lady
2: cross the street.
1: Oh, <laughs> they're not the Boy Scouts. No, they're I the did girl scouts. 40 hours, dude. I did forty hours of community service for this one. Pack lunches <laughs> for the homeless. This one's for surfing.
2: This one's for
1: sewing. I made a basket to get this one. I haven't said anything. I'm I'm taking the respectful route. I think the Hells Angels are cool. Now remember, after the Hollister incident a decade ago, the AMA supposedly declared that 99% of all bikers were very good people and not to let the 1% ruin it for the rest of society. Well, the Hells Angels began wearing that 1% tag like a badge of honor. As a result, one of the many patches you could earn was the one percenter badge. It signified the biker who was proud to be one of the happy few, and was not afraid to show it. There were other patches, such as the filthy few patch, which symbolized that you had killed for the club. Seems so like-
0: let's talk about that one percenter thing real quick, because yeah. that's like a big thing. There are outlaw clubs which are just unaffiliated with the AMA, and then there are one percenter clubs like the Hells Angels. Um, but the the terminology one percenter, like you know, suppose like you said, supposedly comes from that uh, AMA uh, press release. But it seems to add up. It seems it it doesn't though. Uh, the, there's no record of the AMA ever putting out this press statement. Uh, the AMA uh, they've said they have no record of it. Nobody can find anything like this. Hmm. And it actually comes. Uh, it was it was more of hearsay that they put out a statement like this. Um, it was actually more of it. Historically, it was more of an amalgamation of like three different letters written by different people in the motorcycle community, still having that same sentiment of like, Hey, most bikers are good people. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's no evidence that this 99%, 1% uh, uh, press statement was ever
1: released. Yeah. So this
2: whole thing is like both sides are getting information wrong. And then, like, building this image basically yeah, but yeah. like
1: n- even if like no one actually said ninety nine percent the fact that there was a rumor that said ninety nine percent probably, like still could influence this one percent thing. it's the sentiment that
0: kind of perpetuates and almost uh made it inevitable that this sort of mindset was going to happen, I mean, in the same way that we discussed that the uh the Eddie Davenport photo was going to mm-hmm. attract people, you know like this perception that like, Hey, the AMA doesn't ver- think very highly of you. Let's wear that as a badge of honor. Yeah. I think that's kind of an, a, a, that's an attractive idea anyway. Yeah, it doesn't I really matter. Different. It doesn't really matter if the 1% thing was actually ever said because that's just the mindset anyway. Right. Yeah.
1: The sentiment's the same.
0: Yeah. The sentiment is the same. We'll get back to more past guests, but right now a word from our sponsors. It was Sonny Barger that helped facilitate the growth of the club uh, to six regional chapters and nearly 500 members by the early 1960s. That's what's so funny about this to me. Not funny, maybe, but interesting is that the Hells Angels are such a pop culture phenomenon. I mean, I remember watching like History Channel gangland episodes about these guys. I mean, but you, you get the, like, the feeling that they're a way bigger organization than they really are. Yeah. You know? Even throughout it's the just story, like
2: commenters online. You think everyone is like against you, and then you realize it's like two people that are very vocal,
0: right? So yeah, it's only five hundred members by the end of the sixties, and that was after the the uh, the what was it, Monterey or the yeah. the the cresting incident, and then in Hollister as well. Um, but it was their actions in the upcoming years that would gain them true notoriety, as it turns out. The incident at the Gypsy Rally wouldn't be the last time the Hells Angels name would be brought up. Wow. It gives me butterflies Perfect. whenever you do that. <laughs> I got a comment saying that I should not stop doing it. And that <laughs> yeah, makes me laugh I every time. I agree that
1: comment. That's funny. That's funny. So, That's solid gold. Yeah. <laughs> I think Joe is being <laughs> selfish.
2: I I have come around to start liking it because- I think uh, we just
0: overused it that one day. Yeah. Yeah. In 1963, the Hells Angels took part in what would be known as the Invasion of Porterville. Word of a group of Hells Angels heading through to Porterville had reached the town, and the town, they got prepared. Immediately, they called the police and the fire department. The fire department slicked down the streets with a super slippery fire-retardant gel and blockaded the streets with their trucks. Townsville How did they just had- have
2: all this gel to like spray the street down
0: with?
1: Don't
2: waste some seems- gel.
0: It sounds very irresponsible. Yeah. <laughs> Townsfolk had heard the sensationalized reports from Hollister and armed themselves with weapons in case the angels tried anything similar. When the leader of the pack hit the slick fire retardant gel on the concrete he wiped out, and as soon as he touched the ground, the fire department hit them with full force with their fire hoses, blasting the guy across the street. Uh... It sounds like, it's like Home Alone. <laughs> it's insane uh
1: just unwarranted my house i must protect it
2: the town set up fire retardant gel and cutouts of michael jordan (laughs) (laughs) uh other than that though uh nothing
0: super crazy happened in porterville you know nothing Uh, crazier than the fire department blasting dudes
1: with fire hoses for no reason it's just like a, uh, yeah, scared people turning out to be like the jerk. Yeah,
0: just insane. It wasn't until a year later in Monterey that things uh, really took a downward
1: spiral. In 1964, a large group of angels entered the fishing village of Monterey, California, rolled in on Labor Day, hoping to party and raise money for the funeral of a fellow writer. All that is fine and dandy, but what followed was three days of chaos. Fist fights broke out in the streets. People rode by knocking off car mirrors with bats and breaking windows. In a twist of events that now seems inevitable, Monterey turned into exactly what the media had falsely claimed about Hollister.
0: Here's what I was like, you know, I said earlier, it's almost like sensationalism only makes things inevitable, you
2: Mm
1: -hmm. know? Yeah. Wasn't smart. Yeah. Well, yeah. The media created this character for these guys to strive to be. Exactly. Yeah. Most notoriously, though, in Monterey was an accusation of rape from two girls in the town. Two girls aged 14 and 15 accused five to ten members of the Hells Angels MC of gang raping them at the beach in Monterey. Four Hells Angels were tried for this case. This is a super important event in Hells Angels history, as it was the first time the Angels ever defended their members in a legal battle. Since they could not Upfront, afford the price of the lawyers, they decided to try and earn the money in a new way. Supposedly, the events in Monterey is what caused the Hells Angels to enter the drug trafficking business. Yeah, I mean,
0: this is another huge turn uh, yeah. for the club. Uh, you know, we're, we're so far gone now from the, the early days of, of MCs. You mm-hmm. know,
2: I think it's important to mention that they were all. Most of them were using drugs at this point, so yeah, it yeah that was is true. It, it was like only a matter of time. I feel like,
1: yeah. Why are we paying for all the drugs, man? When we just yeah. buy them, and then other people pay us for them, and then we'll also have all the drugs, man. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. So they were able to sell enough dope to pay the lawyers, and after a year of legal battles, uh, they got the 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 uh, the accused members were exonerated. Uh, But most importantly, out of this whole ordeal, they realized that they could sell product very quickly and for a huge profit. After the dust had been kicked up by the trial, Attorney General of California Thompson C. Lynch issued uh, what would famously be known as the Lynch Report in 1965. This report singled out the Hells Angels as an absolute threat to society and that they and that they must be stopped at all costs. By that time, the Angels had accumulated a total of 874 felony arrests and 1,682 misdemeanor arrests. So, it wasn't exactly an unfounded accusation.
2: And they only had 500 members?
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Probably a little more at that time, but that is insane.
2: Yeah. yeah,
1: It's like one guy who has 1,200. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I the 1% parking. of the 1%. am zero one .001%. I'm the
2: 1%.
1: <laughs> but the Lynch report reads like a piece of fiction. At one point, he claims that you could tell a biker purely by the way that they smell. This guy sounds Like weird. lilac. Yeah. In another section, he wrote, <laughs> <laughs> it is alleged that any new member must bring with them to the meeting a woman or girl termed a sheep willing to submit to sexual intercourse with other members of the club. Now while the yeah. hells yeah, yeah, right? Now while the Hells Angels are notorious for their lack of respect towards women, and it's almost certain that things like this may have occasionally taken place. It was apparent that the Lynch report was filled with a lot of hyperbole just to catch the public's attention.
0: Again, like Lynch, you know, I I think there was a legitimate worry um, in his case, but to make the his his report entirely this sort of like hyperbolic, um,
1: and they eat babies. You know, yeah, they do. Mm-hmm.
0: It's it's like lies built on top of lies built on top of lies. You know, all mm-hmm. starting with that Hollister incident.
2: Yeah, they smell and they eat babies and yeah. <laughs> they break beer bottles and they eat beer bottles too
1: I heard that one of them is a lizard man but he's got the back of a horse but the horse ain't a nice horse who listens to you he's the kind of horse who says no sir I don't want no apples I'll just have a baby and some broken glass please
2: <laughs> I heard that when they roll into town they buy all the movie tickets so nobody can see a movie that weekend
0: Critics immediately debunked the
2: report as an I attempt heard to destroy. That when they oh come god. into town,
1: <laughs> I heard that they don't like Christmas and they don't celebrate Christmas and they don't want anyone else to have Christmas because they celebrate what's called Satanmas, and that is when instead of getting gifts and giving gifts, you steal gifts and then you you break the gifts. The
0: critics immediately debunked the Lynch report I as heard- an attempt. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I <I'm> did. <done. laughs> as an attempt to destroy the reputation of all American motorcycle clubs, but the damage had already been done. A line had been drawn between the public and the members of one percenter motorcycle clubs, and its effects are frankly still being felt today. If it wasn't for the work of gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson, we may have never gotten such an inside story as to the actual state. Of motorcycle clubs in America, which is where we'll pick up next week on past gas.
2: I'm so excited for this. This is like one. It was one of my favorite books when I was in high school, and I uh, I should actually catch up on it because it was really good. I'll yeah, I'm gonna Hunter read. I'm
0: gonna read it this weekend. I think you guys should too. Yeah, um, but yeah, we're gonna go into the history of uh, of uh, Hunter S. Thompson, who he is. Get a little background on him, but also. Um, dive into his connection to the Hell's Angels because he really went in feet first uh, and lived with them for about for a year, right? That's hey, correct. Feet, um, feet first, head first, head first, feet, oh, first, yeah. feet first, first, first time.
1: Well, guys, we're not slowing down, even though the world feels like it is. We have new content every day on our main YouTube channel, and if you're watching this on our YouTube podcast channel. Uh, thank you for finding it and if you're not already subscribed go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you don't miss anything Um, also follow Donut across all social media so you don't miss anything there Uh, follow Nolan at Nolan J Sykes on Twitter and Instagram Uh, Joe at Joe G Weber on both of those and then me at James Pumphrey I love you yeah thanks for watching fire it up wink wink more power (laughs) baby